Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Femme on Fitness. Today's guest was recommended to me by a previous guest, Jessica Case of Pegasus Books. Anastasia Marks del Saucedo is a food writer who has worked as a public health consultant, news magazine publisher, and public policy researcher. And today she's going to share about her book, Eat Like a Pig, Run Like a Horse. Welcome, Anastasia. Please introduce yourself and tell listeners just a bit about the ways that you stay fit. Uh, Thank thank you, Tanya. Um, I'm really happy to be here today. Let's see. And I keep fit various ways. Um, One of the things that I do every day is I run. Um, I run uh, usually between three and four miles. Uh, I also do some uh, workout with light weights, probably about 10, 15 minutes with light weights. And I've recently incorporated into my routine a bit of jumping, which I'm really loving. Um, my 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 husband has recently gotten into fitness and he bought these weird uh, wooden boxes, um, which are in our living room. Yeah, I have the, the home slash gym. And um, what I do is I like crouch from the ground and I jump on top of it. And it's, it's a really huge workout. Um, and then the last thing I do is just kind of like integrative fitness. I might garden, I might bicycle. Um, tonight our city is having like a dance in the street. So I'll go out dancing, I take dance classes. Um, yeah, so I, I, I like to keep moving. So jumping on boxes sounds about as fun as burpees. <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it actually, part of that routine, the whole jump routine is our burpees and I hate the burpees so much. So I'm always noticing dust balls and I'm like, I have to pick that up before I do the burpee. But and what kind of dance classes? Let's see, um, a, a variety. Um, I've done, I did belly dance for quite a while and I've, I just got, went back to that. I've been doing um, different kinds of Latin dance, salsa, bachata, um, and I've done a, couple, a little bit of more broad social dancing too. That all sounds really fun. It is really not in the fun. burpee sense, in the real sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I like to describe belly dancing as being um, as good for the core as yoga, but it's fun. You get to listen to music and you get to wear um, cute costumes. And you feel sexy while you're doing it. You do. You totally do. It's really great for getting in touch with your sensuality and good for all kinds of bodies. Yeah. So what prompted you to write this book? Well, my book actually is kind of um, a exploration of the impact of exercise on uh, keeping very serious um, sorts of health conditions at bay. Because when I was in my sort of mid mid latish twenties, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And my first um, episode was like having a stroke. I lost um, feeling and strength and balance on one side of my body, um, which is you know pretty scary when you're 27. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I, at that time, I was a swimmer, and I so I did go back to swimming and I gradually recovered. And then a few years later, I had a similar episode on the other side of my body. <laughs> Um, at that point, I got I did get diagnosed, um, and then I sort of continued with different kinds of exercises. And then at one point, 
um, actually because I was pregnant with my second daughter and I, um, I twisted my rotator cuff so badly, projectile vomiting, um, that I could Ooh. no longer swim. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I had, I was propping my, my, uh, shoulder on the counter next to the toilet and I just like, Ugh. Oh, please so, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And so, so then I was like, I've got to keep, you know, I, I really am a, you know, I just really believe in exercise. So I said, what can I do? I'll, I'll start jogging. So, um, I was already probably like three months pregnant and I started doing like a really gentle jog because I was like, okay, I shouldn't do sh too much shaking around. Um, and then I kept going after the her birth, I just kept going and kept going and kept going. Um, and I noticed that after those first two episodes of MS, I'd had a couple more very typical ones where you like lose sensation in a foot and then a knee, you're weak on in a in a leg. And I noticed that I had stopped having MS flare ups. And I was like, whoa, what's going on here? I mentioned it to my neurologist and he was like, oh yeah, they 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 were starting to look at exercise and and there may be a protective of you know effect there. And so I kind of like Which is file that away. What most people think the, they are diagnosed with it and they think that they can't do things. Yeah. But this yeah. seemed like it went in another direction. It's like, well, now I'm going to take control of my body and I am going to do this. And it actually helped you. It did. You know, actually, um, Tanya, when I was diagnosed, it was real. I mean, the interference was just coming online and I really didn't want to do it because it, you know, it would you took it, I think it was a, a weekly shot and then you would have like soreness and you'd feel like you had flu for a couple of days. And I was like, I, my MS isn't bad enough for me to do that. So I just said, okay, I'm just going to keep on exercising. Um, and I just did. And I have literally not had an MS flare up since then. So that's like tw more than 20 years. You listen to your body. Yeah, I, exactly. You know what? I'm so glad you said that because um, again, because there was very little treatment when I was first diagnosed, I really did listen to my body. And, and one of the, you know, I even remember I had during the attacks, I would sort of like, what I've kind of channeled this like healing for <laughs> this sounds like, I, I had this vision of this, it was kind of like this Y shaped thing that the energy of the universe would come in and I'm just like, let it in. Um, and then I also, you know, I would try and, you know, strengthen myself, I would walk, I would do exercises. And it really was by listening to my body that I somehow happened on this thing that is really, really protective. And now there's a lot of science that supports that. So speaking of that science, I, I found this book both fascinating and gruesome at times the mouse chapter in particular. <laughs> yeah. What did what did you learn from your study of rodents? Oh, wow. <laughs> rodents? Okay, well, first of all, I mean, so much, first of all, um, from, from the book's perspective, I learned not only rodents, but every I, so I should say that, you know, there's kind of a play on the title there, eat like a pig, run like a horse. Their animal theme is used throughout the book and looking at different types of animals and their physical activity. Um, yes, I wore my tiger to... shirt because we were... Yay, tigers. <laughs> I didn't do tigers, although they are big cats, so maybe I know a little bit about them too. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, anyway, so the mouse chapter, 
the first thing I learned is that mice, like they never stop moving. They are, they actually run, I think it's sort of between four, six to eight miles a day because they're just constantly moving and their metabolisms are sort of adjusted for that. Um, so that was really interesting. But the bigger thing that I learned, um, which was kind of depressing, is I, I um, ended up doing talking with this really uh, big company called Jackson Labs, which has basically invented the laboratory mouse and is still um, the major supplier to most scientific laboratories. And what I discovered, first of all, is that the mice um, don't get any exercise, even though they are built to run these six to eight miles a day that a laboratory mouse is kept in this little tiny um, um, shoebox cage and they really can't do anything. And even though uh, scientists know that it would be better for them and it would make them calmer and happier to have access to exercise, they didn't do it because of course it costs more to create those sorts of cages. Um, so related to that, if you then um, have the, you know, sort of continue my hypothesis that exercise is vital for health, because they don't have this component of health that is vital, that kind of invalidates a lot of the research that is done on them. Because when you do a nutritional study or a study of um, obesity or diabetes, but your subjects can't do this one thing that will keep them healthy that really kind of skews the results so the other thing i learned is that maybe we um really don't understand one of the reasons we don't understand how incredibly beneficial exercise is is because all of our laboratory subjects have been um basically into enforced sedentarism and they can't they can't move and then there was also the elements that you discovered about how exercise has the importance of exercise was kind of pushed aside in favor of nutrition. And, you know, please don't look at the smoking aspect or let's just ignore that element. I was actually afraid for you when I was reading those parts because it's such a big business that I was worried that someone was going to try to silence you with what you were discovering. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's possible that they have in some way. I have to tell you, this is kind of hilarious because um, I was just invited to this this conference by Food Tank, and it was called the Food is Medicine um, Conference. And mm -hmm. when the, the organizer of, of Food Tank invited me, and I said to her, well, you know, I actually disagree with that. Um, so, you know, should I come? <laughs> and she said, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you know, come speak up, you know, you're, you've got an important view. But unfortunately, I, I had to leave before we got into the, the, the breakout sessions. But I did notice, and I was cutting, kind of irritated, I was sitting in this room and everybody just assumes that they, it wasn't that is food medicine. It was already like, how do we get more, you know, more people into nutritional programs? How do we do this? And there's just, it's just the assumption is that you can improve people's health with food. And then they don't really even consider, which I think is the important question is, I, there is a component from nutrition, but relative to the component from fitness, you know, how important is that? And there was a study actually that came out last summer that was completely mistitled by the New York Times. It was like 
oh, um, you know, it's true, you can't outrun a bad diet, but what the findings of this study, which was done in Australia by a scientist called uh, Melody, uh, I think her last name is Ding, was actually showed that um, improving your fitness is two to, to five times more powerful than improving your diet. I think I read that article and yes, it, it is misleading. <laughs> Yeah, I asked, I, I actually um, emailed the scientist and I got her, her her study and then I shared it with somebody else and we, we went through it. And, and yeah, that, that study actually supports the, the thesis that exercise is more important than diet. And going back to your book, it seems like you found occasion after occasion that supported that theory. I do. I mean, there it it goes through different um you know with the different animals and different uh processes but i think really um when i kind of distilled it the more important idea is in terms of this medicine is uh, when you're thinking about food as medicine you take food in and then basically your body breaks it down into its um component uh, nutrients and they go into your bloodstream and then some of them go into your into your cells um, but that's it for medicine okay <laughs> but when you exercise your cells your muscle cells actually create new molecules and those molecules have very powerful effects they um, can reduce inflammation they can um, reduce uh, pain and they can reduce stress um, and interestingly, when the pharmaceutical industry is looking for new medicines, it often is using those same exercise pathways. They're not diet pathways. So they're looking for molecules that will function on those same pathways. So what do you think is the right balance between a focus on exercise and a focus on diet? Mm, that's a good question. I would, in my head, I just 80-20. I would say may you know focus on and first of all i i love eating cooking eating nicely you know and i'm not against all that it's just in terms of you know what are you doing to be healthy i think more, you should focus more on having um an exercise diet making sure that every day contains you know a certain amount of aerobic exercise that gets your heart going that and then have like you know other portions of as I do, like the dancing for your balance and 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 strength building and and stretching and all that kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, enjoy food and of course don't go crazy. You know, don't like drink too many sugary beverages. And I include fruit juice with that. And and yes, vegetables are really good for you. So go ahead and eat a lot of those. But otherwise, I really wouldn't sweat it. Sorry, you have a chapter about sweat too. So <laughs> yeah, there is sweat is so good. But no pun intended, right? Don't sweat. <laughs> yeah. Sweat is so good, but it's very um it's funny because my my brother loves the hot yoga and my and we recently went, he was here and we all did it. But um the just being in a hot room is not enough to have like the beneficial effects of the sweat that I described in that chapter, which comes can only be created again by exercise because when your mitochondria get heated up, then they create a, these new molecules that have anti-inflammatory effects. 
So going back to the animals, I have to say that I'm one of those people who actually loves bats <laughs> for multiple reasons. And you dedicated one of your chapters to these creatures. So I, I was hoping that you would share with listeners why bats don't get COVID-19, why they never age and anything else cool you think we should know. Oh yeah. Oh my, the, first of all, the bats, what I learned about, they are really, really sweet, social animals. And they have these really nice societies where they take care of each other. Really, really cool animals. Um, and one of the interesting things about them is they are like the animal kingdoms ultra, ultra, ultra marathoners, um, because when they go out to look for insects at night, they can fly for, you know, you know, sort of a five miles to yes, 50 miles at night. And of course, all this activity, um, it, it only it not only burns a lot of calories, but it also creates a lot of heat, um, which their bodies are designed to dissipate. So this effect of heat actually is kind of a stress that exercise creates and, it, and it's beneficial because the bot, then it sort of triggers these other things. So bats have a very high level of uh, certain kinds of anti-inflammatory models called heat shock proteins. Um, and those like protect those can protect you against any kind of inflammation. They also protect you when you um, get sick and have a fever. Um, so there, with bats, their core temperature cycles from quite cool to very hot. Um, and so they have this really robust system and they have some, some other other impacts of, of all that flying too. But the impact, the primary one is they never age. So because they're these incredible athletes with all these amazing molecules um, floating around inside them, People who research bats told me that once they reach maturity, you can't tell the difference between a two-year-old bat and a 30-year-old bat. And sometimes bats live that long. That's amazing. Yeah. And they, they also don't, um, they don't have any like impact. They don't get like all old and frail to the very, very end. And is it that anti-inflammatory that helps them that protects them from COVID-19 as well oh yeah I'm sorry I forget to mention that part. yeah yeah so anyway while we were all this was going on I was like you know bats are are um alleged to have been the animal from the from which we got the COVID-19 uh, virus and and but they were not affected at all and so of course their respiratory systems and their uh, their um uh their immune systems are just you know able to deal with that because of all this exercise they do and all of this heat stress that they get um because of that so and, uh, Go ahead. sorry i have to add one little piece in so in support of that um they did find that people who were physically fit were not getting covid and with a high degree of fitness were not getting covid at the rates that other you know people who were not fit um, which suggests that it also has a protective uh, factor for us. Yeah, that's definitely worth noting. And it's true the same of colds and other things. If you're, um, you know, if you're, and especially with an endurance athlete, you'll probably notice that you're not getting sick when other people are getting sick around you. And, and that's the same effect as for bats and COVID. 
from your discoveries, what else can we learn about health and fitness from animals? From Well, from health and fitness, I would say, I think the most interesting thing that somebody uh, said to me in the course of doing the research for the book was that it's exercise is built into our bodies a need for fitness is built into our bodies it's really it's not an optional thing it's it's a it's a feature um so it's not it's it's something that we can't um ignore that we really need to continue to be much more active than we are um and and to make sure that we find ways to build that into our daily lives So you say that you run three or four miles a day, right? Mm -hmm. What about people whose bodies aren't at the point where they can run? What do you think of the recommendation to walk, say, 10,000 steps per day? Um, I think I, I first of all, I am <laughs> I run because I love it. And it's and the other thing, it's easy. It's pretty quick. I think any way you can uh, move is good. And, you know, I know my mom actually was mobility impaired and I would help her figure out ways to be a little bit active, even as she was starting to decline and not able to really even do things like walk, you know, you have chair yoga, you have, um, you know, stretching, you can, I know at one point she had, um, I forgot what they're called, but they're basically like a bicycle for your hands. I have different seen those. ways. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, you know what? I'm actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I did talk to some people who were mobility impaired in the book and they did that. One person had actually um, gone around the country using his, and I, I feel bad. I can't remember the, the, uh, the term for it, but his arm, arm pedaling device. So, you know, it, you can stay fit anyway. And as long as he you was do the it. guy who was raising money for other people who were impaired, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, that kind of brings me to my next question. This We're a collective here, and we talk about all different types of topics from a female perspective. And I cover fitness, but I also have active activism. And you had a few things in the book that just made me want to touch on those. For example, how would you define food activism? That was a phrase that you use, and it's the first time I heard that. Um, <laughs> I think food activism, I think I probably was among a few food activists yesterday, um, <laughs> which is in people who um, believe that, you know, food is a, a powerful force for and, and, and maybe nutrition or, it, you know, might be uh, social justice or it might, you know, whatever, or, and they work to promote that. So, so advocating um, that food is the answer and nutrition is and diet are the answer as opposed to exercise. Yeah, that, that would be what be one way. They may be, you know, or they may, but they may do it because um, they believe that uh, having certain kinds of food will help us avoid um, corporate, you know, large corporate, corporate agriculture, something like that. You know, there are different reasons, but, but that's what a, a food activist is sort of food first and food policy first. Okay. And you also mentioned that you believe access to medical care is the single biggest thing we can do to save lives. Oh my God. Yeah. How can we cure the disease of poverty? Wow. Fix everything right now. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. That's just like a big one. <laughs> so just, oh, how are we going to cure poverty? Thanks. Right. I mean, if you if you could just snap your fingers and make it happen, what are the things that would need to happen to to save us from this? From poverty. From well. Okay. Well, I mean, I think let me let me. Um, I'm not going to be able to answer to tell you how to cure poverty, but. I will say um, one thing I do believe in is is looking at local problems and finding local solutions um, because I think that, the, that those are the things. It's it's like um, saying using details when you're writing. The truth is in or the, the things that work are in the reality of the situation. For example, um, in the book. I do have a chapter about worms, which you nicely did not mention. And one of the things that is just so, so tragic is the number of children around the world that are affected by intestinal worms. And that is a problem that is really easily dealt with. The first thing you can do is actually give them a very, a, a very sort of old school medicine that's a very inexpensive. Um, and then this, but then the second thing is you can um, help people figure out other ways um, to deal with bodily waste. And that's something that could possibly have um, a tech technological solution because it's time okay now you're really unwinding i'm just gonna struggle like i'm ready i one thing that really? really irritates me is how stuck we are to plumbing real i keep um my brother a while ago was like i i need a new idea to like work on a business like you've got to work on doing a waterless toilet that's it we need to because it just frees so much of the world if we can figure out a way to deal with waste that doesn't involve uh, plumbing so that that those are things that would help with the poverty situation because that um, that would allow people to be healthier there. Um, I don't know that those are just sort of examples, but I think I would I would want to look at specific situations and then think about the things that could make a difference in aggregate. Because there are options and they will influence a change for the better. Yes, I mean that's what I'm saying is those here some small things like and actually. On the on the waterless toilet, there was this. Uh, I did talk to a company for the book. I think they were called Waterloo, or something like that, or Lulis, or. And what they had done is that they they came up with an idea where it's basically a toilet seat, and underneath there's a little um, receptacle. Then then you then every time you defecate, it gets wrapped in like a biofilm, and then once a week, and this is the part that's a little bit cumbersome, someone will go around and collect that and turn it into a biofuel. Yeah, I do remember reading that. And even though it was, you know, it's, it's an icky topic, it's, it's unpleasant, but just reading those parts were inspiring me that this is why I want to succeed with all the things I do so that I can start organizing programs like this uh -huh. i don't you know <laughs> i want to be able to put these small solutions in into play because they're not that big and then show other people that it can be done exactly can create amazing ripples that save so many lives with something so simple 
Exactly, because like even with this little t type of intervention, if you were able to do that, you can, you know, improve children's health, improve women's health, because women are very affected by worms as well of childbearing years. Um, and you can create in this particular instance, a little kind of business opportunity for someone in terms of the collection and I don't know, there's just, or you can, can turn that also into fertilizer if you, when, when waste is processed properly. And I don't know, there's so many things like that. If you just kind of keep drilling down and look for different ways that the situation could be improved. So that's my answer to your <laughs> huge, really unfair question. <laughs> that you inspired. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. So is there anything else you would like to share with listeners? Um, I am planning to go out and dance in the streets tonight. And I hope you're going to do something like that. Go move. Go move. Yes, I love it. So thank you very much for sharing your journey, your findings, your book with us. What is the best way that people can connect with you? And where can we find your book? Oh, let's see. Book is probably easy to find online. Connect with me. Um, I do have uh, Instagram. I had I had to kill the Facebook because something weird happened with it. They said I was an imposter, um, and <laughs> I have Twitter. I do have um, on my website. You can find my uh, my Gmail address, and I'll say it, which is Anastasia M the essay at Gmail dot com. A N A S T A C I A M D E S at Gmail dot com. Um, and I'd love to hear from you. So if you have any thoughts, please reach out. Thank you again. And thank you listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. Go buy the book, go move. This has been Fem on Fitness, part of the Fem on Collective. <laughs> <laughs>